0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio. Broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on SustainableLens.org and on oar.org.nz.
1: Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. Each week we talk to somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher and me, Samuel Mann. Shane's not here tonight and what I'm doing is diving into the archive. Today I've got a special on empathy. We have got five different guests we've had on the show. Talking around concepts of empathy. First up, we have Donald Norman, who's written several books, one of which is *The Design of Everyday Things*. We start out talking about behaviour change and driving. driving.
2: It made them so comfortable and so fast that we made them the opposite of impossible to use. And I've long thought, wouldn't maybe we could address road deaths by having a big spike pointing at people's heads? drive really
3: carefully. I have a different version, but it's related. I think we should make the the passengers really comfortable and continue the same thing we've been doing, but we should put the driver out in an open cockpit in the front, buffeted by the wind and by the rain, and to feel every single bump in the road. Maybe we do need to face up to the fact we have to make some hard decisions. Well... Without disagreeing with you, I think, though, the direction that we're going is that the cars will drive themselves. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's going to happen. We already have cars that can do 99% of the driving. Introducing them into the roadways of the world could be very, very complex, and it's not easy, and it's not easy to introduce something new into an existing environment, and they're not yet 100% reliable and so it might be cities or countries like singapore that will come first because they're very small and very controlling so they already have very stringent requirements on their automobile drivers and licensing but, but, but using
2: but, using that as a
3: as a metaphor though
2: are we making things too easy to have lead unsustainable lifestyles and consume too much Did
3: you just see the recent news article that the um, the gulf Golfing Association, at least in the United States, is thinking of having um, making the holes 15 inches, which would be how many centimeters? I don't know. 30 centimeters. Of course, we want to make it easier for these poor golfers that people are turning away from golf. It's too difficult. Sorry, that wasn't an answer to your question, (laughs) but I couldn't resist. Do we need to challenge people? How, how do we face up to this? The uh, so, so, uh, so there are different issues. We kill a large number of people in automobile driving, and a large number of those are killed by drunk drivers, and it's really hard to stop drunk drivers, in part because, come on, in a national culture in New Zealand is drinking beer for God's sakes. You get to stop people. And that's, in Scandinavia, they did a good job of preventing drinking and driving. But it's difficult. And so, <laughs> the technologist's solution is technology. We'll make cars that can drive themselves. And, you know, six million or so people get injured and killed every year in the world in automobile accidents, and 40,000 a year in the United States alone. And so, it, we actually will reduce, not only deaths, but we'll reduce pollution dramatically. So a lot of pollution in the automobile an automobile going at constant speed is actually pretty efficient. It's the starting and stopping that's bad. And when these are automatic, they can be talking to each other and they can slow down. They know where the problems are. You don't need traffic lights anymore because the cars can just space themselves in, in going through intersections. And you can platoon, which means uh, a long line of cars going a long distance can just be a meter apart while driving at the same speed. And that not only takes better use of the highway space, but it's a lot more efficient so that um, it uses less pollution, less less gasoline. Uh, Bicyclists know that. Bicycle racers, they platoon close, near each other. It reduces the air resistance. Um, Now, I don't know if, you know, is technology the solution to all our ailments? No. And sometimes technology is the cause of some of those ailments, but I think we'll find the mix. Sometimes it'll be better technology. We'll probably find a technology that burns coal so that it does no harm, does it efficiently. Uh, We are developing technologies that give us energy with much less side effects. But at the
2: moment, we seem to be waiting for that miracle.
3: No, it's still happening. We're having more and more wind farms. We're having more and more solar cells. That's happening. Um, The uh, automobiles companies Toyota, it's now announced that we'll release a fuel cell automobile. So that's an electric automobile, but instead of electricity being generated by some remote power plant, it's generated uh, by by hydrogen in the automobile itself. Uh, so there's many, many less side effects. Now, we have to say, well, now where does the hydrogen come from? That's a system analysis. But it, we are reducing if, if those turn out to be economical which they'll have to see that will be a positive impact
2: ok, three, three questions that I ask everybody do you consider yourself to be an
3: activist? That, that <laughs> so how come it takes me so long to answer the question? shouldn't I just say yes or no? Well, by the te- by, the normal definition, the answer is no. But it, I think I'm an activist, I'm just not a publicly jumping up and down activist. But I, I certainly do try to train people, both through actual educational courses and also through my books. Um, and I uh, certainly believe in the principles of sustainability. Um, and I'm trying slowly to cause these changes to come about. But I'm doing it slowly. I'm not doing it through in what is traditionally thought of as an activist movement. You've got some sort of big levers to, to pull on. Yes, right? exactly. And I think those are more susceptible. Those are more powerful, I think. That was Amory Lovins' point. Instead of going to the press and being strident and making big claims, let's just work slowly in a positive way with, say, the major polluters and show them that they're losing money or that they're not being as effective as they could be and that we can make changes that are good for society but also good for their business. Now, is that being an activist? I think it is.
2: What challenges do you think you face for the next couple of years?
3: I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, when I look around the world, it's frightening. And so the challenge is global warming. I mean, look how difficult it has been to convince people that this is a real phenomenon and that maybe we could do something about it if we start now. That's a major challenge. Uh, peace, for that matter. Look at all the warring factions in so many parts of the world. Um, and territorial dispute, we have that in Asia. Uh, We have that in uh, the Middle East. We have that in Africa. Um, People who have lived together for centuries or longer hate each other. In fact, I have a feeling that the people who are most similar to each other are the ones who hate each other the most. And uh, those are scary. I don't know where the biggest challenges are, but it's frightening to think about them. What do you think that... This is an extra question, bonus. What does
2: the design of everyday things off of those challenges? Is there anything that you can think? If only they'd listen to... If only they'd listen to what I said on page 47, that's the answer.
3: One of the principles that I espouse in in design, and certainly in my books, is empathy, to understand the other point of view. And you have to design for other people, with consideration of other people. And, and and other people are not stupid. If you have if you have two or three groups that are fighting with each other and disagreeing, quite often, they're, each of them is correct, but it's from their own narrow point of view. And but you cannot really work with them and and come to some sort of agreement unless you understand the other person's point of view doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but it does mean you have to understand why they're so vehement. And that's the only way, I think, to come to some resolution, to respect the other people's point of view and try to understand it. And I think that applies, whether it's warring nations or uh, difficult um, negotiations in business, or designing something for other people to use, where we have to, not only does design have to meet, you know, needs, but it has to be the engineers have to be able to design it so that it's, uh, you know, it's effective and reliable and it's a, the cost is not high and and manufacturing has to be able to actually build it and produce it and so these people also fight with each other so the same principles apply
2: My last question, I think you've just answered but i ask it anyway Do you have any advice, I think,
3: for for listeners? Anything you'd really like to see them do? Well, there's two things. One is, in the design of everyday things, a major lesson that people take from the book is, hey, it's not my fault when you have a problem using something. it's It's usually a design that didn't take real people into account. And so... One piece of advice is whenever we do things, we should try to understand the other people. Take into account not how people ought to behave. It's so simple to give a lecture about, whoa, this is what you should do. No, we should actually go and observe them and talk to them and understand them what they should do and what they do do are different things. And, and second, it's really important to, under, to take a systems point of view. Don't look at one simple thing. We try to look at, all the interacting parts life is complex that means our solutions will be complex ones
1: and from Donald Norman, we head to Christchurch with Tracy Scott talking about communication. In conflict resolution, when they felt
4: happy because they're getting on with their friends, when they feel pride because they've accomplished something, so it's about just making a mindfulness to it rather than a reactionaryness to it, which is what we tend to do because we don't teach it.
1: It doesn't need necessarily need to involve other people. It could just it could be internal conflict. Hundred percent.
4: Yeah. One of the things that we do talk about a lot, and it is a little bit of one of my kind of, you know, one, I've got a few of them, soapboxes, is around the different conflict styles, which for youth we turn into conflict animals. And one of the styles that people like to use a lot is what we call the avoider, the conflict usual. One of the negative aspects of being an avoider is the non-communicator. I'm not going to talk about it. And what we know, and we can go into all sorts of statistics and fact, if children don't talk, what does it become? It becomes internalised. It becomes sadness, anxiety, depression, and even suicide. So I love to talk to children about the value of actually not avoiding talking about things that are bothering them or that they may have an issue with or a conflict with because the long-term progression of that is not good.
1: Our political system is set up on the basis of zero-sum games. So there has to be a winner. There has to be a loser.
4: Mm. Yeah.
1: That doesn't sound to, a, sound to me as though it's going to align with the sorts of solutions that, that you'll be looking for.
4: As far as the school systems are concerned. You make some of that. So 100%. And that's... Why again? I'm going to I keep bantering on about well, the value of giving this to our youth because I know from when I present this information to our young people how liberating it feels for them to realize they have power over the choices that they make when they disagree with somebody or they don't like somebody or something disagrees with them. The power that they feel when they can make a choice and the control that that gives them is awesome. Because I'll ask them things like, how many of you will say, it's, that's just who I am, I can't help it? And of course, basically, every hand of the room goes up, a few adults will do the same thing. Oh, I can't help it, it's just who I am, it's me. And I said, "In the moment that I hear that, I hear you saying you're giving away your power. Because what it means to make a choice is where your power is. And that's why training and mediation and all of these are tools of self-empowerment, they're tools of self-determination because we create an environment and we create a space where we're expecting people to say, I choose. I choose to throw a tantrum at you. I choose to ignore you. I choose to walk away. I choose to stand up. These are all choices and when we train or when I train the conflict animals and even when I train this concept with adults, I always talk about the fact that there are people in situations where that choice will create a positive opportunity and just as equally that style can create a negative opportunity and escalation. It's all about mindful application. To have mindful application, you have to have awareness.
5: How
1: do you get people to the point where they can accept that there are multiple legitimate viewpoints?
4: Like in a mediation or are you talking... In concept first, but then perhaps in... Uh, The first concept itself. self. So the, the, the the first place to sort of make that shift, the first place to take that journey is actually what it means to have power over your own decisions. What does it mean when you chose? So, for example, Sam, you could be standing here and having a huge tantrum at me, and you could be calling me names. Now, you could absolutely be 100% wrong, but I can choose whether to laugh at you, get mad at you, be scared by you. At the end of the day, I'm still in control of my reaction to you, regardless of what you're doing. As easy as that sounds in... Theory, it does take a practice, but part of it is giving our children permission that they can have that choice to how they react. Once you start giving a sense of empowerment and a sense of choice, then what you hear from other people starts to build your empathy tool. Your empathy tool is the tool that we need to be able to work together because when you have an empathy and you have some consideration of somebody else, you're able to entertain that along with your need, which allows you to then see if you can mix something up together. At the very least, sometimes having an awareness and an empathy or an understanding of somebody allows you to be able to accept the situation.
1: One of the challenges in sustainability is that quite often the the conflict that we are having
6: mm-hmm.
1: isn't with somebody who is beside us.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: It's our actions are negatively impacting somebody in Cambodia, yeah. and they might not even be cross with us because they you know it's, it's way disconnected. Or with if we think about intergenerational equity, our conflict is with. Yeah, you know, people in the future whose resources we're using up. Yeah. What can we learn from that sort of ideas of empathy when there isn't another direct, direct connection yeah. to
4: that, something that you're not seeing and mm-hmm. resonating with? I suppose you could start to talk about um, what it means to if we wanted to shift, because empathy really is about that, that interpersonal, that social connection. Mm. But what you could then start to talk about is impact what might this decision or this conflict or this dynamic that you're engaging with now, what impact might that have? Not just on your you and your world, but what impact might it have socially overseas? That's why those examples like, you know, woman's right to vote and apartheid, those are examples of conflict where the ripple effects and the impact of those people standing up can be felt now. That's a generational feel. So it's it's I think that's possibly switching it from an empathy to Kind of concept to an impact concept. An impact can have many different ripples. Yeah. When
1: you talked about the, the, I think you called it the escalation. Mm. Uh, You know, you're trying to avoid it happening, or, or then you talk about it, and then you know if it gets through to, you know, mediation with a capital M. Yeah. Is it the same sets of tools or the same principles applied through that, or as it dials up? Do you have to change what you're doing?
4: This is where it gets complicated. This is where conflict is complicated because the reality is is that we all have certain styles that we are comfortable with. It's sort of like our our personalities have a, a, you know, we're extroverts or we're introverts, and we can label ourselves in all those different ways. But the reality is is that we all have a different way that we like to engage with conflict. just is. It's a complicated beast, history, Role modeling, experiences, validation. But what happens then is that our personal desire and toolkit, when it meets with somebody else's, can either be compatible or not. So the power comes in recognizing that... And then going, well, me and Sam, we can work out where we're going for lunch together, easy as. Me and Joe, not so much. And me and Sue, we're not going to ever agree. And then we start to make a validation story in our head going, well, actually, must be um, Sue's problem. She's the bad guy here because I get on with the other two people, so there must be something wrong with her. Is where we start to create a story. So to be able to effectively manage conflict on a, on a, either a personal level or whether on a capital M or whatever is actually recognising that and recognising what is the outcome that you're trying to achieve when you're engaging in conflict. What are you needing to have happen? And then you go, right, so I'm going to analyze who I am. I'm going to understand the other person. I'm going to have a focus on what is my end game. And therefore, what are the tools and strategies that are going to best meet that journey? So it's not as simple as going, oh, we're having a conflict. Let's tick five boxes and we say we've done it. That's the complexity is that you've got all these different layers.
1: One of those layers is the power relationship.
4: Yeah, yeah. All sorts of things come into play. Candlelight casts a certain
7: sense of comfort In the night I still fly up to your window, see inside Of your jeans it's in the pocket to Riverside. In the pocket side doesn't seem to bother me. thunder as i wonder why I. Y- This time, Kate. Let me go. Don't sail away in your storm One day, the in your decks took I out halfway. Now the horizon's gone, and the rising sun won't come again. Tonight There's a perfect sense of slumber in the power lines There's a murmur from the other side, the satellites And there's a flicker in the wind across the city light
1: Dunedin's own sometime winner in wonder next up on our search for empathy
0: Lisa Ellis. profit motive, or things would be different even than they are. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look at the constraints that, in fact, already function. And I think um, what you say about um, private and public virtue is really relevant. In the philosophy department this week, we had a visit from a famous Republican little art theorist, Philip Pettit, who's written on this topic, really in an interesting way. And um, what he argues is that uh, if you're going to be a decent human being, you have to incorporate not dominating other people throughout uh, your life, including your working life. And in fact, there are Republicans, more radical uh, Republican little are, I repeat, <laughs> virtue theorists, basically, um, who are interested in um, what they call labor republicanism, which includes non-domination in the um, structure of production as well as the distribution of goods from it. Um, so, uh Pettit, in fact, was a a sort of court philosopher, or as he put it I think differently, an advisor to the Zapatero regime in Spain. They actually implemented uh, laws based on the idea of non-domination. It's not impossible for us to restructure our interactions such that they're not the raw merchant private profit-based motives that you were referring to. It's just really difficult.
5: Yeah, because I mean, Chomsky talks about this in, uh, you know, how capitalism, capitalist corporations are the ultimate totalitarian regimes because you have to do what your boss tells you mm-hmm. because your boss has bought you your body and soul. Yeah, uh, what a totalitarian
0: that, regime is, is removing the opportunity for free choice, mm-hmm. removing the opportunity for heroism. And you're right. I Chomsky's right that um, a, a perfect corporate environment has a similar function. But we don't, in fact, usually inhabit those. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, it's possible for people to do things like wield their professional ethos against um, an order from a boss. It's possible for people to um, refer to, I wouldn't be able to go home to my children, or, or I have a personal ethical system. Or um, it's, in fact, better for everybody if we organize things with a long-term rather than a short-term perspective. I, myself, was really, I, I, you, in this business, you look for heartening things. I was really heart- To learn earlier this year that all of the Fortune 500 companies are incorporating the need to spend money on climate adaptation in their long run forecasting. I mean, if they're incorporating it in their long run forecasting, they're not doing it for altruistic reasons. They're accepting that the mechanisms that govern their decisions are going to be constrained by questions of sustainability.
5: Is this. because you often you know, we have the I get some of the radical left socialists stuff and they say we need a revolution. Is there an evolution going on internally in a lot of these organisations? Because I, I uh remember the when the IEA came out uh, talking about um you know, the radical changes that we need to make in the world to prevent climate change. Um, I was talking to Kennedy Graham, who's one of our MPs, but he's an international diplomat, and he uh, has been on the show before, but, but he, I was saying to, I asked him, where did this come from? Where was, these you know, really radical policies coming from these you know, these big institutions, and he was saying it was the, it was the middle management, it was the mm. the actual researchers, not the, the top tiers, it's, it's the next tier below, and they were really deeply deeply concerned, and they were just basically going to their bosses and saying, you know, this needs to happen. Yes, and they've been doing that persuasion
0: because middle management gets messages up from the stratum of reality, and top management can hear what it likes, isolate itself. Um, It's also true in uh, the little tiny world of policy that I've spent some time studying, um, uh, where people are trying to find solutions where you can have habitat management negotiations that don't fail, which is actually quite difficult. And um, some of the best solutions have come not from the political representatives at the top and not from the grassroots either, but from the middle managers of of both sides getting together and um, saying, actually, all of us want um, predictability. all of us want relative security. It should be possible for us to reach a compromise. And the the middle bureaucrats and the middle managers and the development interests have made uh, imperfect, certainly imperfect, but uh, some project, some progress in habitat management negotiation. So I think you're right. You need somebody with access to reality, um, bringing those messages up.
5: And this is where I mean, this is where people go. Well, why is inequality such a, a big thing? And of course, the, the problem with inequality is if you're very rich, you are isolated from, from, the, from the real world to become less empathetic. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of studies showing this. Uh, I mean, you can, it can happen in the, mono- in the space of a monopoly game. If somebody gets more, you know, starts winning all the money, they start becoming less empathetic with their fellow players.
0: Yes. I, I, mean, I love behavioral <laughs> economics. It teaches us tons. And it's
5: quite incredible that it can, that can happen in such a short period of time mm. in something that's not real. Mm-hmm. And people immediately behave in a different way, and so I suppose this does show that inequality and you know the higher level of inequality creates this lack of empathy and, and creates these these problems that you've been. And we shouldn't expect
0: enlightenment at the top to save us. (laughs) 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 I think um, one thing that uh, would help us reframe our environmental problems in a way that is productive is for people to recognize that for the vast majority of environmental problems, the structure of interests is such that there's an overwhelming majority with interest in sustainability, and a tiny minority interested in short-term extraction. But we haven't framed our... um, Environmental politics that way. There are certainly exceptions. Some political parties, um, some great people around here, um, have understood this. Um, But in the main, um, the trend toward framing in environmental politics tends to be human interests versus non-human interests, and that's interesting from an ethical perspective. But from a political perspective, it. Uh, links the majority of people for whom uh, the need for sustainability is enormous links their interests together with those of the extractors when in fact they're invidiously related um, and there's instance after instance of people for whom uh, the extraction policy was really damaging them, expressing themselves on the side of extractors because they've come to internalize the logic of extraction as being associated with being human well, of course people want to be on the side of humanity. In fact, I think it's um, something that all of us professionals in sustainability need to really help us talk about um, how the uh, real structure of interest is being warped by public discourse.
1: And to a perhaps different reality, at least here's
8: well-being. speaking AD, and you've got to spend 20 minutes to make the story about them. And I used to love the pictures of gods and goddesses, and because they're very easy to make up stories about. You know, none of those stories ever made it outside of the grey matter. But um, the when you can't read, and you become you love because I think stories are fundamental. I think they're the most fundamental way that we teach and learn. Through storying and whether it's how we story the day that you've just had whether it's a story how we feel our justice or an injustice has been done to us we story things to make them understandable and um, and I so I fell in love with radio stories in the morning because you could you could touch them you could touch them in a way that um, a, a voice telling a story to you is very different to the silence of words on a page I'm not I'm not i am um, not uh diminishing what writing is i mean i i love reading now but but i love more um someone who can take a complex idea and know how to work with people who listen so that it breaks their heart in a way that the written word can't do it and um and so, so I decided I wanted to be a mythologist. and But I thought that meant making up stories, not, not, uh, not, stud, not, not being Robert Graves and having to unpack them and kill them in the process. So. <laughs> but, um, and then strangely enough, I don't know how to explain this. I think some kids actually give an indication of something that's a driving force in them very early. And so essentially I've now become a storyteller. But I—that's educationally, and in in films, and in, in in writing. But and I understand the the immense power of being able to tell a story, the immense power behind it. So, in a way, this—you this, know—the the bus kids used to. Um, it was a bit of a joke because a kid who couldn't read or right wanted to become a mythologist. And then, you know, it was a, and then storyteller. And you can't even spell ocean, let alone read it, the word. Yeah. And uh, it's a really funny thing. It's not a funny thing, really. Uh, uh, we call it funny in retrospect. My nickname on the bus was Professor. That was the joke. They, they were smart kids. Was they were they smart kids? They were i can 't put this word on radio <laughs> 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 but n- no, but I think what it was is that in our family mum my dad left school at twelve mum at fifteen, but they love language they love words and so it was very rich in the family is very rich in language, and so things like you know the wreck of the hesperus um Cunning as a dunny rat, um, you know t- terms language like that, it was very colorful, and so when you 're a dumb kid, but you use words like going, well, that was purgatory, you know and, and, and you know what that means you just can 't read it or write it there 's this this confrontation, and a kind of an anomaly sits there, and so the way you deal with it is is joke about it, and so you know like one of the other things was because you just go big words, big words, big words, big words when you started to try and explain something. And you sort of think, well, maybe I better learn to shut up a wee bit, but but not at home, not at, not at home. So it was it was an always an. Th- I don't feel now I'd, I look back and I go, look, that's just what growing up in a, a wee place like that was. There wasn't enough diversity to understand those things, um, but I I always remember it had a dark side, not for me, but my my next sister. She uh, she she could read or write, but she, and write. But she, we had grown up, I think, in probably relatively bo—they didn't know they were bohemian. But my parents, because there was nothing to lose when you're a f- contractor, they just went ahead and did things, you know. And um, and Suzanne, who I uh, you know I love dearly, I've got immense respect for her now. But I still, oftentimes, I see her. When she was in Form Two, she was bullied so badly her hair started falling out. And Mum and Dad knew nothing about alternative schooling. I mean, that was just, you just went to school. But um, we couldn't wake her up. We couldn't, so she had a breakdown. And that was just from incessant bullying. So when they go big words, big words, big words, or, hey, professor, hey, professor, that actually is not as innocent as it sounds. It's part of a malaise. It's part of something that actually is infectious and sits, works both on the surface and under the surface. So the person who's being bullied actually can't name it. They can't describe it. People go, well, what are they saying? And you go, I don't know, but it's... Yeah and so and and then you're often asked as the victim to articulate something that you you can't you can't touch but I I look at it and I think now you know she's a, oh, she's a magnificent teacher magnificent teacher it just works with uh, you know f- f- kids in their first two years of school which I have no idea how human beings do that <laughs> that was the one area I was absolute rubbish at you know Kids who have an attention span of 0.3 seconds and then want to tell tales on each other, but but also want to show you the world, you know, and you're just, it's just, um, I just have immense regard for people who can do that. I can't. But one thing I think I have found is that we've just been at a um, a symposium of of some very, really wonderful teachers, and um, a lot of them have been in the fire. I think there's something, I don't think, I think empathy is a real thing in teaching. It doesn't mean that you have understood the exact condition of the people with whom you're working. But if you've struggled to learn, you understand how important it is to find a way that doesn't strip someone's dignity off them when they're getting things wrong. And to know how powerful it is when someone sincerely says to you, you know, that's amazing. And it means it. You know, that's a huge thing. That's a big, big thing. And so in a way, um, I look at it and I think, I, I guess it's not, a, not unusual that she became a brilliant teacher and it's not unusual that many very gifted teachers uh, have had to struggle with learning.
6: My
1: projectors overlord. Here is a Vanita D'Andrea.
9: Northern Ireland during the troubles there and so you know I was really at the really at the face of a real challenge uh, having because of the subject I wanted to teach I was being threatened not to teach that and that was really quite a quite a, a moment of realization that this was real. That this, real, this was not only real for my students' lives, but for me. And so we got through that that period, though, you know, they were very cautious uh, and protected me, made every effort to protect me for the rest of the time I was there.
2: Did the police enjoy your class?
9: Well, the police were in it anyway. In those days, the police had to take um, professional development courses beyond, well... They wanted to get all the police at least an undergraduate degree. They thought that that would be really helpful for the police, and I agreed with that. And the uh, police um, were taking my classes. In fact, there was an incident in one of my classes, in the race and ethnic class, uh, that um, one of the police came in with his gun. He was in uniform and had his gun on. And... um, didn't think a classroom was a place for weapons, because you know how America is about having weaponry mm-hmm. everywhere. And so I um, asked this young policeman to remove his, his weapon and to, to lock it in the trunk of his police car. That if he wanted to participate in the class he really had to become in unarmed because we were going to be talking about very controversial topics race and ethnicity and how that how people relate to that, and anybody could have grabbed his gun out of his holster in, a, in an instant of rage, and we could have had a tragedy. Well, he was very, very upset by that. And he went to um, he he stormed out of the class, didn't come back. Went to the head of the criminal justice program, asked me to be taken before the president of the university. Um, I was called in, and I was told, you know, what are you doing? Why are you telling the police not to wear? Arms. I said, well, because the classroom is not a place for weapons. We are talking about very controversial things. This could be escalated into arguments, and people might decide to use the arms if they're in a the class. And um, so they said, okay, this time we'll we'll support that. But you know, if it happens again, come to us first. Blah blah blah. Well, it was a really craziness. So it was re- that was a really. Um, uh, you know, eye opener for me how the policeman reacted. I thought he wouldn't have any problem at all. Two years later, he's back in my class. He's now in his detective garb. He doesn't have a he doesn't have a weapon on. And after the and i I recognized him and I thought, oh boy, what's this going to be like? And he came up after class and was very moving for me. He said, "You taught me the greatest lesson of my life, and I'm back to learn something more from you." Wow. Yeah, it was really powerful. Mm. So in those days, things were pretty tense in the classroom. You know, they, the classroom was a really volatile place uh, and had, you know, things were happening. And particularly in community colleges where, you know, people were seeking to improve their life choices. and And so my years in the community college were probably the best teaching years of my life. They were really... Uh, and they were really enlivening and they were very uh they you know they they taught me so much more than i taught anybody else
2: so. and it sounds like the, there was no pretense at remaining neutral or no there, there was quite clear normative stance
9: well i my class i tried to, i taught my class from an evidence-based approach which meant that it was theoretically, objectively neutral from a scientific standpoint. Um, but, of course, this, the students in the class would come from their own viewpoints, and I what I had to do was moderate that, and I had to find a way for people to understand that they were going to make statements about race or ethnicity, that they had to base them in facts, and that they weren't going to be able to just work off of their opinion, uh, that opinion was... Valid, you know, people's opinions were valid to the each person, but that opinion wasn't, uh, the evidence in my class. You could have opinions, but you had to back, if you wanted to state your opinions, you had to back it up with some evidence. And, and that was always, for, for the students, that was the challenge. Uh, where do you find the evidence for your belief system? And so, you know, uh, now we know how things have turned out more recently. Now, this is many, many years ago. I mean, this was in the 70s. So, you know, now we see all this kind of fake news and and ideas about society that are just so off the mark and have so little evidence behind them. I mean, even around scientific issues like uh, you know, environmental degradation and climate change. I mean, in those days, you know, people were a bit more open to an evidence-based approach, but now I mean it must be. I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to teach now because people would be challenging you always on your evidence. Uh, even you know so- scientists just aren't respected in the way we where they used to be.
2: And um, so it sounds like in this in the seventies though
9: in the United States.
2: Um, so, both the college and the police were. Moving in the right direction, but the, the college was letting you teach this, backing you for decisions that's you were correct. making.
9: That's correct. Uh,
2: and the police hierarchy was they clued had up to. enough to be pointing people in your direction or the direction of.
9: Well, they cooperated with the president of the college. Yeah, and um, that's true. That's a really interesting observation. I hadn't really con- considered that. Um, I mean, though there were incidents where the police. Would stand back and let real tragedies happen in demonstrations. You know, when we were when we were marching against the Klan or when we were marching against the war, or when we were marching for women's rights. I mean, those were the years when we were marching a lot, and in many cases, the police weren't helpful in in uh, protecting demonstrators. Uh, they you know they sometimes worked against it. So it's an interesting. I think when they were clearly assigned to protect me um, they had no they had no choice but some of these guys because they were already in my class you know I had already developed a relationship with them that they saw as as one that they they wanted to protect me because I was I was a teacher that they respected um, and so that was part of it but uh, so it was a very mixed bag you know there were those incidents where on an individual level i was protected but if i were out in a demonstration i might not
1: thank you vanita you've been listening to a special on sustainable lens where we've been exploring different perspectives on the notion of empathy we started with donald norman tracy scott Lisa Ellis, Welby Ings, and that is Vanita D'Andrea. You can find the entire conversations with each of those people on SustainableLensStar.org. We're brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. This is the Pixies. Where is my mind? That was Sustainable Lens. I'm Samuel Mann. We hope you enjoyed the show.
4: Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens.